I'm Doug Fern, and this is my take on music recording. Sigma Sound Studios in Philadelphia was responsible for a huge number of hit records, starting in the 1960s and continuing into the 21st century. Eventually, Sigma had two studios in Philadelphia and three in New York. Joe Tarsia founded Sigma in 1968, but his career as an engineer goes back to the 1950s at Cameo Parkway Records. He started in a mono studio, using very few microphones, hardly any outboard gear, and recording to tape. He has lived through the evolution to stereo and multi-track tape, and from mono vinyl records through the CD and into the digital age. I sat down with Joe in January of 2019 at his home and recorded our conversation using a Flea M49 in the bi-directional position to a Tascam DR100 portable recorder. I started our conversation with Joe's early career. You know, I never knew much about your early career, except what I read about it. We never talked about that. You know, I'm... You you grew up in Philadelphia, right? Right. In South Philly? Yeah. And did you, were you interested in music as a kid? I, I, I was a fan. I I, mm-hmm. um, I went and built myself a little stereo system. It was a, a Bogan amplifier. Oh, yeah. Electro voice speaker, and I built a cabinet. and So I was always dabbling. Never dreamed I'd wind up in the, in, in the studio business. If, if it wasn't the, for the fact that, that Clark had tr- created a, a music community in Philadelphia that didn't exist, mm-hmm. I would never have been in the business. So it was just a just a chance. Well, I got a lot of questions. Unrehearsed questions. Right. This is very informal. And uh, You know we'll, how to we'll, edit, don't you? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't even have to use a razor blade anymore. It's much easier. Well, you grew up in South Philly, and you must have been interested in electronics, right? I was. I was not a good student. My father wanted me to go to school. I didn't want to go. With my buddies in, in junior high school, I said, let's become electricians. I, I wasn't driven by anything. I was mm-hmm. seven, 16 years old. I'll become an electrician, and I'll go to a vocational school. And my mother says, oh, that's just dirty work. Why don't you take radio? Mm-hmm. Now, electronics at that time was, it was so far back, was radio repair. Yeah. TV was... TV had just gotten into the school, 1950. I graduated in 1952. TV was just a new thing at the time. I, I took radio instead of electrician. I was always looking to make a buck on the side. So I started putting up TV antennas with the, with the telerotors that they had and the whole schmear. In high school, I co-opted for a TV company. So... I watched the, the, the at that time they called them uh, tube jockeys. It was uh, it was like the roofing business. It tended to be crooked. Oh really? Well, the guy I worked for used to buy tubes that had no labels. You know, God knows where they were made or whatever. You go into a house and take the customer over, and you bang on the power tube, and it always sparked when you did that. So this tube is going bad. Mm-hmm. I wasn't involved in it. I was the the assistant to the technician. Mm. Uh, I went to Temple a little bit at night school and uh, learned enough that I could supplement my income by fixing TVs at night. A guy I knew who had a little business and the second floor was a a dance hall. It was called The Frat. And it was a place where Avalon and Fabian and the Chancellor record people used to rehearse. Where, where was that? Do you remember? 17th and Jackson. Okay. The hall is still there. They had a, a on the first floor was a, a, a jewelry shop where they sold small appliances and some jewelry and odd items that they, they were able to procure. It was, in fact, I bought my, my wife's engagement ring there. Mm-hmm. $450. Anyway, uh, the guy says, um, do you know how to fix tape recorder? So I said, sure. And he said, there's a little studio upstairs. So I went upstairs. And after 10 years of working at Philco, I knew enough from my experience in the research department 
that these guys didn't know what they were doing. Mm. So I asked them if I could rebuild the studio. They had a, a Berlin tape recorder and a couple of microphones and a, like a portable mixer. I said, let me rebuild the studio. I talked them into buying two Ampex 351s. Yeah, well, maybe back then it was three or 350s, but the same we, basic model, yeah. Yeah, and I built a little concert with the help of a, a guy named Norman Burke, who at that time was servicing Cameo Parkway at a studio at 1405 Locust Street, in the, right across the street from the uh, Academy of Music. Yeah. And uh, so I got to know him, and he sort of introduced me to the, the players in the business, and he was always looking for help. So I started to fix the, the stupid problems that, that musicians... I mean, people had studios not because they wanted... They, they were concerned about the art of recording. It's because they needed it to get their guitar on tape. Mm-hmm. So they weren't really interested in the technology. So I came in with only technology in my mind. I'm not a musician. Like I was like a savior to them, you know, fixing s- stupid problems that you would laugh at. So I got introduced to the community. Uh, eventually met Harry Chippets. And now let me tell you about the, this uh, this little studio. the The purpose of the studio was that one of the owners of this little stop shop downstairs was related to Tony Mamorella. The main name means nothing to you. He was the producer of the Dick Clark show. Uh. You know, he was an employee of ABC mm-hmm. or WFIL. And uh, so they figured we make a record, take it to Tony. Tony takes it to Dick. We're millionaires. Mm-hmm. Of course, that never happened. <laughs> but, right. but it was, you know, that was the plan. Mm-hmm. I got introduced to the that community, and I met a gentleman, uh, Harry Chippets, who was the vice president of Cameo Parkway at the time, and uh, Dave Apple. I don't know if you know the name, but mm-hmm. Dave was the uh, engineer, songwriter, producer working for Bernie Lowe at Cameo Parkway, and so I went went to work as his assistant, and he taught me a lot. He taught me from the musician side how to deal with musicians mm-hmm. and the and the basics of recording now I'd gotten a pretty good background at, at Philco uh, I was in the research department but we worked on some projects that were um, uh, really consumer stereo was new mm-hmm. so I had to build a, a, a stereo system for the president of the company and I put it into a um, a tea cart you know, Philco was working on a, a mono, a mono uh, stereo system for the home that had a, a, a common bass system. Mm-hmm. So we did tests on what, where, where the human ear lost direction, mm-hmm. and then they, they, we did projects with um, where they had uh, surround sound. We had a bunch of speakers, tiny speakers around the room, and they ran a tape at high speed. To you know, uh, with a delay, mm-hmm. and at that time, Capitol had just opened the studio in L.A. in the in the record-shaped building. Yeah, and there were a lot of articles in the uh, Audio Engineering Society Journal mm-hmm. about how they built that studio. So, so I had some idea, and and the love for music came together, and um, and and I think what the departed me from what was going on in New York. And in Philly was, the, the sophistication was really poor. Most studios had one tube, preamp, uh, equalizer, all tech PA equipment. Oh, yeah. That's what they would build their consoles out of. Mm-hmm. With a rotary knob, mm-hmm. 10K and 100K was the EQ. With the engineering journal, I saw that the sophistication was coming out of the West Coast because of the music of the film industry, mm-hmm. they had they had the ability to be able to support. They had uh, lots of money. Yeah. yeah. Outside of uh, uh, Bill Putnam and and uh, uh, Universal in Chicago, who started Yuri, mm-hmm. I mean, he was the only guy independent that was doing something. You know, he had a Echo Send. That stuff was not available. And, and the only the only technical magazine 
at the time was broadcast engineering. Right. You know. Yep. I was fortunate to get in in at the time when the industry exploded mm-hmm. and the independence became the the independence existed because people didn't creative people didn't like going to CBS and working with a, a union engineer that was looking at the clock mm-hmm. had no interest in the music and so so independence bell sound and a and r and uh, bob lipson's studio i can't think of the name of it that these studios sprung up and they took the independent producers business and uh, they gravitated to that because they had somebody that was willing to sit with them that was probably a musician as well as an engineer but most studios were started by not technical people but by musicians who who wanted that freedom mm-hmm. So I brought a, something a little different to it, to the table in Philadelphia at least, in that I, I wasn't a musician. I came to it from strictly the technical part. And, and I think that the fact that I realized that the technology would, uh, came from the, at that time, came from the West Coast and from, uh, introduced me to Electrodyne mm-hmm. and in Chicago to Yuri and mm-hmm. th- those guys were doing the brown gown-breaking, ground-breaking recording technology stuff. I mean, you know, uh, I, I think at that time, CBS was still using rotary Dave and faders, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You look at the old boards. They made, made great-sounding music. I always envied, the records I envied uh, when I got into the business and couldn't get the sound was what came out of the... The 30th Street Church in, yeah, in New York City. Absolutely. Well, when I was great sounding room. Well, and that, and all my life I tried to emulate that mm-hmm. with an 11 foot ceiling. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, yeah. That's I tried to develop the echo chamber, and I tried. I my, when I got introduced to the EMT, I hated it. I didn't like it. You know, I was used to a, a live room. Mm-hmm. I would go to New York and and watch. I, when somebody was doing a session in New York, I would uh, try to follow them and. And watch what they did, and mm-hmm. and the biggest lesson I ever heard. I was trying to get a drum sound. Whatever I did, the drum sound sucked, and I didn't know why. So uh, I went to New York with with, with um, John Madera and, and Dave White, and they were recording a Bell Sound, mm-hmm. sitting in the control room, and and the room is set up. It was there was a live session, so there was strings. They had three horns in the middle of the room, saxophones around with single mic. Drums were always the foreign. Bell Sound was a, a room that was like 20 foot wide and almost 40 foot long, a real long room, yeah. 18 when, foot ceiling. Yeah. So the, so the engineer's going around and he's testing all the microphones, three vocalists in a booth. So they're running down the song and he's muting the different microphones. And the solo of the, 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 the drum mic, that sounds just like my drums. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> But then he opened the string mic. Yeah, it was all the bleed, and 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 that was the biggest lesson I ever learned mm-hmm. about. Uh, well, that was a really interesting sounding room. I did some sessions there, and that really high ceiling, I think, really I affected the, the sound was, of that room. Uh, yeah, there was some great acoustic sounding records came out of that room. Yeah, and they, at one point they had like eighty percent of the chart which was yeah. Bell Sound. I know. And so even, I, given uh, when I was there in the 70s, they still had the three-channel monitors. No pan pots. It was either left, center, or right. Yeah, well, pan pot was relatively... Yeah, but even in the 70s, when that was on all consoles, they were still doing it that way. So when we built our console, we tended to be a little ahead of the time for... Mm-hmm. This was at Sigma or at Cameo Sigma. Parkway? I want to know more about Cameo Parkway because I was never in that studio when it, in its heyday. So what was that room like? It was, I'm going to guess now, it's a long time. Uh, it was probably maybe 15 foot wide. I don't think it was longer than 15 foot. I had no idea it was so small. Yeah, it was small. Yeah. And they had a, a closet next door, which was, they had an outfit as an echo chamber, uh, upright piano. One microphone stuck down inside. I think we used two mics on the drums. It's interesting. That room was so funky. A call from France. They want to know how we got our drums out. <laughs> <laughs> we got what we got. I mean, that was. Right. 
Yeah. I mean, Dave was a, a good musician, had good ears, but he was a musician. He had no 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 clue about microphones and patterns. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the studio had one Poltec microphone, uh, uh, an A7 sitting in the corner looking at you. It was a um, Poltec. 604? 604 and a utility cabinet. Yeah, right. So that was was it. We had one Alltech limiter, Mm -hmm. tube limiter. Everything was tubes then. One pull tech. Yeah. That was it. I mean, you got what you got. Right. And you remember when you mic'd the drums, did you have, it was like an overhead and a bass drum? I think it was two mics. I think it was, the overhead was was a salt shaker. Oh yeah, six thirty-three. I, I don't remember it was on the bass drum. Yeah, but there was so much spill in the room. It was like you know the guitars were easy. You know there was this EV six thirty. What was that? Uh, the, the, the very popular. Uh, the six sixty-six. Yeah, six sixty-six. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was one problem: the echo chamber. When people would walk above us, was an office, and when people walk with high, girls would walk with high heels on the floor. Mm-hmm. Used to get in the echo chamber. So Bernie paid to have the offices carpeted. <laughs> That's one way to solve it. The tenants in the building were very unhappy with us. We had to re- try to record at night because mm-hmm. during the day, you know, there was there was not very little consideration to acoustics or you know, right. making a room sound plus or, or a double studded wall was was not... There were musicians. Yeah. And that's what gave me... That's, I was just an edge above them. Mm-hmm. Not far, mm-hmm. but... And I crammed a lot. I was very fortunate. Yeah. Well, in Cameo Parkway, do you remember what was the what were the walls? What were they made of? What was the the walls in Cameo Parkway? Oh, they they had the typical acoustic tile on the wall. Okay. It was a, it was very primitive. You can tell by the sound of the records. It, mm-hmm. You know, uh, it was just you know plaster you know a plaster room mm-hmm. with acoustic tile. And I don't think there was carpet on the floor. I don't think it was carpet. We might have used a throw rug. Mm-hmm. The upright piano had one microphone stuck down into it. Yeah. I mean, just what a musician would do. Yeah. The result of that was like a characteristic sound. Right. I, I, my theory is that the, in those days, records had personalities by the rooms they were recorded in. Sure. I mean, you could tell a, like a, a Muscle Shoals record. Uh, right. Instant you heard it. That's right. And, and you can and tell the same Motown. Yeah. So we, we had personalities. Yeah. Well, you know, if I'm if I'm like in a supermarket or a drugstore or something, they have music on in there. When something out of Sigma comes on, it's like instantly recognizable. Not only because they were hit records, but just the sound of that room. Well, it's just you know so what I think about it today. I was chasing that Columbia sound, mm-hmm. and uh, so I always used too much echo. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I would take the music and often, not all the time, but feed it back into the studio yeah. with a couple of mics and, and and try to blend it in. I was always, I always wanted big. Right. And, and to my detriment, I think I overdid it. I mean, you know, when I look back, some of them are, are sort of washy. It didn't hurt their success any. <laughs> well, you know what? What came first, the chicken or the egg? I, uh, there's that that professional pride. Kenny Gamble appreciated it, but I don't think was ever willing to say it was important. But there's one thing I can say: neither Kenny Gamble or Leon or Tommy Bell or Leon Huff had, never had a hit record that didn't come out of Sigma. So, undeniably, they they were great talents, and they would have found success anyway. But you know what? Who well, it was all part of the sound. You were part of it. You know, and guess what? When I was doing it, it was like torture because <laughs> I never liked anything. <laughs> it's only I, today I can appreciate. I listen to it. Hey, that's pretty. Sounds pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. But I, when, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, I mean, you know, the things you work on, you just say that is not what I wanted to sound like. Did you ever get like. a record from the pressing plant that they didn't punch the holes <laughs> dead center? Right. And so you hear that wow. little bit of wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, every once in a while, I don't, you know, I don't have the experience you have where wherever you go, you're going to hear your records on the radio. But every once in a while, I hear something I did. And often I don't recognize it because who knows, there are a million things and most of them never go anywhere, at least in my studio. 
And, you know, I'll, I'll be listening. I'll say, wow, I really like the way that's recorded. And then I'll listen a little more and say, wait a minute, I did that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I was very fortunate. Bernie Lowe, who I admired, it was a little bit kooky, but I said, the song is the horse yeah. in which the hours rides of fame. Yeah. I used to get records from the West Coast that blow me away. Yeah, the, that music was uncolored. What we did in Philly and New York mm -hmm. had that personality that we're talking about. Right. And and the the records that came out of uh, United Western and, mm -hmm. and Capital was that unadulterated, pure sound. Well, people wanted uh, that, uh, what, what you had to offer, which was a distinctive sound. You, you know what? It was interesting. They, you know, they talk about the sound of Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Tommy Bell's sound was as different from Gamble and Huff as night and day. Right. I mean, their music, that, mm -hmm. that sound is the wrong word. With the, their music, Tommy was... Arrangement, yeah. Tommy, I think, looked after um, Burt Bacharach. Mm -hmm. I think he was more Burt Bacharach. Yeah. Gamble was more Memphis or more soulful. Right. Uh, I mean, Tommy was a, such a great arranger. He was so good. Yeah. I, I listened to... Um, but you by golly, wow. Mm -hmm. Or um, people make the world go round. Mm -hmm. he, he was such a articulate... He just knew exactly what to do for the song. Yeah. Yeah. But there were... See, and I, and I say, when we talk about the sound and what was important, their music was different as night and day. I mm -hmm. mean, Kenny's was banging down home. Tommy's at times was almost classical. Yeah, right. So you were at Cameo Parkway for a number of years, right? Yeah. I, um, I started in 62. I left in 68. Okay. And at that point... 67. And was that when you found the 212 North 12th building, the Reco Arts well, building? Well, I always knew that about that building cause, mm -hmm. because when, when Bernie Lowe wanted to do something that was a little bit more sophisticated... Like it was, if he was doing a, a classy record with D.D. Sharp mm -hmm. or The Times, you know, or, or um, something that, that wasn't going to be that raggedy, you know, he, he knew what the, the studio was and that he had. So when he wanted something a little classy, he went to, to Emil. Mm -hmm. the, the, the trick was that they would go in with everybody and, and when they thought they had a take, they used to shut off the vocalist microphone and do one more. Mm -hmm. So they could come back and overdub it. Yeah, we take it to cameo, and we went. I I tried never to go four times, but we go back and forth. It, 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 uh, Bernie would say, "I want to put a tambourine on it." Then they're making a pass. If the needle wasn't hitting at zero mm -hmm. when you aligned the machine, I was mm -hmm. unhappy. Right, but you know, it, it was interesting. They ran at different speeds depending upon. They didn't have. Dynamic tension or whatever. Yeah. So you you try to splice something from the end of the reel. The right. beginning reel is found there are two different speeds. Yeah. Well, this was all mono back then, right? Well, it was just the birth of we we had a two track machine, but we didn't use it for two track. We we used it as a two track, not as a stereo. We mm -hmm. used it because we could put the vocal on one track, mm -hmm. and it was I guess it was about six early sixties sixties four when when stereo became a product. But what changed it all was uh, when Dick Clark picked up stakes and moved to L.A. Mm -hmm. And then in 64, the Beatles hit. Mm -hmm. It was all over. Yeah. I, you could shoot a cannon through the hallway <laughs> and not hit anybody. Uh -huh. I mean, Camus being like dominant on the charts, all of a sudden, it was a very hard time for uh, Bernie Lowe and... Yeah, that must have been quite a, quite a shock. And, and, and here I am, no education. I mean, other than being a recording engineer, but no, uh, you know, I went to vocational school. Mm -hmm. You know, I, now I'm as a, living a certain lifestyle. I got a family. I, I got a house in 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 the suburbs of New Jersey. I'm not going to support all this. So I'm saying I, I might have to pick up states and, and try to get a job in New York or. That was 65. It took me to 60, 67 to, to get put a loan in place. Mm -hmm. You know, Harry was going to be my partner. He's going to be my partner. I was going to, I was going to basically work for him if he found the money. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, I found it on my own. I was struck by lightning. I feel very fortunate. I was. Yeah. 
right place at the right time, and and you had the right skills to make it work. Well, I like to think so, but yeah. yeah well, sure. So Sigma opened in '68, correct? When you took it over, it, it was actually close to the end of the year. It was it was August fifth to be exact. Mm -hmm. I made a lot of money, but it was always poor because I was spending it. Yeah, and, there, and there, we had the one of the first. I bought twenty four. Uh, single rack Dolby's. Right. All those green lights. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Dolby came, it was such a big sale for them, they come in and stole them for me. Yeah. Whatever new box came out, I had the first uh, phaser. You oh, know, yeah. The, the, sure. Yeah. As soon as I got it, we did uh, You Were Everything the Stylistics. Right, right. J, J Mark turned the knob. <laughs> well, when you opened... Were you, how many tracks did you have? Eight. Did you say opened as an eight-track studio? Well, I had I bought a, a RCA, uh, at RCA, um, Ampex mm -hmm. eight-track mm -hmm. at, at uh, Cameo, mm -hmm. and then that was like sixty-seven. And by the time you know, six, sixty-seven, I was I finally was able to sign a lease at, at uh, two twelve. So I I, I went to uh, Scully, mm -hmm. and I had them build a 12-track cabinet because Bell Sound had a 12-track machine. Mm -hmm. And I said, I don't know where this is going to go. Yeah, I remember that machine was there when I was there. So we had uh, eight electronics for the 8-track and then a 4-track in, in one cabinet. I, it was pretty cool. In other words, uh, and the idea was we could break, we had the eight ele 12 electronics, 12-track uh, head stack. And, we, mm -hmm. and that was on 2-inch tape, right? I don't remember, but I think the... Well, the 8-tracks, I think, were all 1-inch. But, but the 12 was, you know, in between. So yeah. they could have used either, I guess. Yeah, but so it never happened. We, mm -hmm. You know, next thing, that uh, Scully came out with a 16-track. Right. You know, with one machine, when the machine would go down, I was out of business. Yeah. So I would get up and drive to... Um, Connecticut. Connecticut. Yeah. And be on their doorstep when they opened mm -hmm. with the tape machine. Yeah. Because the 16 track, whatever it was, I think it was a heat problem, mm -hmm. but it used to go into a flutter mode. Mm. I had a room. Uh, do you remember a, a guy named Bill Buster? Don't recall. Bill Buster was a guy that he did the overture for Tommy mm -hmm. with. Do you remember Tom Sellers at all? Yeah. Yeah. It, sure. well, Tom, Tommy used to produce for Bill uh, Sellers, um, Bill Buster. Mm -hmm. And uh, and he used to bring big, big aggregations in, so we're doing the overture from Tommy, copying uh, the the Who, mm -hmm. and in the middle of the session we'll play the tape back. It's going. Mm. I got away with the horns, but we had to put the strings on again because you could hear the flutter. Yeah, it, when the machine got to a certain temperature, it went into this flutter. The uh, drive motor went into this flutter mode, mm. so I had to drive to. Uh, and beg him to fix it. I had one machine. Yeah, you know. yeah. Well, you know, my studio, uh, Veritables, opened in 68. I mean, excuse me, 69. The first was in Lansdowne. We were always like one step behind you. <laughs> so you were 8-track, we were 4-track. Then you went 16-track, then we went 8-track. And we kept going that way till finally we were both 24-track, but you had two or three 24-track machines. We only had one. It's <laughs> all because of my customers. Yeah, I mean, I know. They, yeah, I they, know. they demanded it, it right. sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that was, I know exactly what you mean. It was always, you had to have this newest thing. They come in, they want it. Well, no, Kenny really didn't know. It was my way of being able to raise the price. Yeah, okay. I said, Kenny, you want it? Uh -huh. you know, and, he, he, and he always bought, bought in. Mm -hmm. So when you moved into uh, 212, the, that studio was basically stayed the same until you redid it. Was it was basically what, what Emil Corson had. The, mm -hmm. the, in between, there was a studio called Recording Arts. Yeah, A, a guy took it. And after that, it was... Um, Sound Plus, the what was their name? The two Italian brothers, yeah, Luigi know. brothers. Oh yeah, Luisi, not Luigi. Mm. They didn't like working with people. They didn't like. They were musicians, mm -hmm. stuck with a studio, and uh, when they got out, same acoustic walls and 
I, I modified the control room in order to put the big machine in and so forth. But Well, as, as I recall, that room was transite, wasn't it, on the walls? Transite, which was that sort of concrete, asbestos, perforated tile. Well, it had the, uh, the, the, the perforated tile that was uh, regimented holes. I have right. a picture of it. Yeah. Well, there's lots of pictures where you can see yeah. that. You know, I started out working in radio. I worked at WPEN, which was on 22nd and Walnut. And those were old, old studios from the 40s. They hadn't changed them. And it had the same... Everybody used treatment. the same tile. Yeah. Yeah. And it was actually sounded very, very good, uh, as long as the room was big enough. You know, a small studio with that stuff didn't sound good. But if you got it big enough, it sounded pretty good. Whatever you say, I mean, Amo was a was a, a metal case, but mm. but boy, he got some great sounding records. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I listened to the, the for a mono studio. Mm -hmm. He really knew how to work that room. Yeah, I always admired him. One of the reasons I went to two twelve North Twelfth Street to open my studio was because of the sound of his recordings. Mm -hmm. He what he did mono. He was a great engineer. However, he had an echo chamber that ran the length of the studio. Uh, it was like 40 foot long. It was five foot wide, maybe, mm -hmm. four. Yeah. And then at the top, he had like a nine foot ceiling. The, the building ceiling was almost 12 foot. He, he went up like nine foot and then went across the hall. So it was an L-shaped mm -hmm. And it ran the length of the hallway, the length of the studio. I remember how it was made keen cement. You had a uh, an A7 at one end, mm -hmm. RCA 77 at the other end. Mm -hmm. I could point out records that you can listen to where that you hear this fullness. Amazing. And I wanted to capture it. I could never do it. Forty years later, it dawned on me what was going on. You had a mono studio. Mm -hmm. So, when do you add echo? When you're recording. And what happens when you have a wall that's one two by four? It bleeds right through. So this warm bottom that is record. If you listen yeah. to uh, Do the Cha 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 by Bobby Rydell, mm -hmm. or um, So Much In Love by The Times, mm -hmm. you hear this ambience. And I tried to capture that, and I never could. I was yeah, recently it bothered me all this, all these years. Recently, I'm listening and I'm thinking to myself, this guy could only put echo on when the guys were in the studio, right? And so, therefore, there was an acoustic transmission through that wall into that, which I I tried to use that chamber. I eventually had to get rid of it. Because I had so much traffic, you walk down the hall, mm -hmm. you hear them walking. Yeah. Soda machine goes on. It would, it was, it was a nightmare. So I had to finally get rid of it. It broke my heart, but I was never able to capture that, that big sound. Right. I remember when that was there, and and you couldn't walk down that hallway when you were mixing. No, I'm, mixing. I mean, it was mono. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. But I mean, when you had the studio. Oh yeah. 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 Until we, you know, we finally redid the studio, but right. you learn to live with it. Well, how how big was that room? It was like 22, the, the building was 34 foot wide. Mm -hmm. The studio was like 22 foot and almost 40 foot long. Yeah. But, and, and the ceiling, it was like a, a 12 foot ceiling roof, mm -hmm. but the ceiling... I tapered the ceiling. I followed the roof was tapered for for rainflow, so I followed that contour to get as much height as I could. Right, right. When I when I go to New York and I'd see uh, Bon Jovi's place at the Power Station, yeah, that big. I wish I wish I had the experience of working in a room like that. Yeah, because we had a fight for for all the acoustics. I did a record with um, a three hundred nine. I hated that room, mm -hmm. but. Kenny liked it because he could sit in his office right. and listen to the wall. Yeah. Cameo built two rooms in that building mm -hmm. and they tore down the big room that we did uh, Soul Survivors and mm -hmm. 
and, and when he bought the building and kept the little studio. It was transparent. You could hear buses going by. It was really primitive. Okay, so you moved, uh, you got Sigma set up and going. Who were your first clients in there? Uh, I was working a lot with, at that time with uh, Madeira and White. Mm-hmm. Well, the, their fame came from um, Danny and the Juniors. Mm-hmm. They had a lot of modest hits as a writing team. You Don't Owe Me was like one of their biggest records. Oh, yeah. Leslie Gore. Right. Was that done there? I think they did that. That was before me. Yeah. But they were like a good customer. And and Huff, Leon Huff, worked for them at the time. Mm. So I knew Gamble and Huff before they knew each other. Mm. And Tommy had taken a job at Cameo after the company was sold and they were... They had the studio to know what to do with, and they had the ability to make records. They were still trying to make records. So Tommy was over there experimenting with the uh, Delphonics and so forth, and I got to know Tommy pretty well. And Huff used to come in with uh, Madeira and White. Then Huff met Kenny Gamble at the Schubert building, Mm -hmm. and then they came in together, and the rest is sort of history. They uh, sort of clicked. I'm all, I was always fascinated with that 212 North 12th building. When was that building actually built? Well, that, when I got there, well, the first floor was RCA Service Company. Oh. The second floor was the studio. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I could, I I, uh, I took over the basement because I, I had these EMTs I had to put somewhere. Yeah, they were always a pain to find yeah. a place. Yeah. About 74, 73, 74, I took over the over the uh, first floor and mm-hmm. built a studio down there. Yeah, Studio B, yeah. And and that was a challenge because one foot, of, I mean, right above me was another studio. Yeah. But we managed, we put the, a suspended ceiling in. Mm-hmm. We built a room within a room. Right. Well, I did some sessions in Studio B, even when there was stuff going on upstairs. And you could hear it, but it, in the room... But you didn't really hear it in the recording. It was pretty well isolated. I got away with a lot. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 well, they had that. We did a live radio concert with Robert Trower, who was a guitar player. I never yeah. heard. I don't know how many marshals he had, but I never yeah. heard. It sort of burned the walls. He was so <laughs> loud. Yeah. It's the one that the guy could hear. And that, and that, we had to stop the session upstairs. Uh-huh. Well. When did you get the Electrodyne board? First, the first console I had. Okay, so you had that in 68. Uh, somehow, I don't know how I made the connection, uh, but I think the first console had maybe as little as 12 inputs, and it was eight channels. Yeah, I remember, I mean, they were so far ahead of everybody else, and you'd, you'd look in the magazines, and you see this console in there, and you say... Look at that. That's that beautiful. Was a lucky That's what break. I want. <laughs> yeah, it was a lucky break. But the EQ is 100 cycles, 50 and 10K. and Yeah, pretty limited. But it worked well. I mean, the con- that console sounded good. And then Paul Buff. Allison. Had this uh, Memories Little Helper. Yeah, right. I, th- I don't know anybody. There were other automation systems on the market, but I think that was the first one that Sort of worked. Mm-hmm. The yeah. problem with it was that it kept losing time oh. because you were transferring the data. It kept moving. So you had, if you were if you were good, you would anticipate the move. <laughs> well, how, and, how many and, and people didn't like it because you you had two tracks. You had, right, so, you lost two tracks. Yeah. How many inputs did that console have? Do you remember? The, no, the second one had I think sixteen. But the mix down was 24. Yeah. It was separate. That's right. That was a separate monitor section, yeah. And we did things like we had the eight button select. And so I, I think we were inventive. But again, Dave Hughes and my background at, at Sigma. So we put a, a switch in that would go one to eight and, and flip the switch and it went one to 16. Yeah. And then, and then we did another little tricky thing was uh, that uh, we'd do stereo panning between odd and even. 
So the, the, when you opened up Sigma, you were the engineer? You did, you did all the sessions? I was the only employee. Yeah. And how long did that last? When did you bring in other people? Well, I, I, I tell people, I was friends with, uh, social friends with the Jamadera. The, the summer of the next year, he took me to Europe. So my wife and I were on vacation in Europe. I took a $45,000 loan to open the studio. That's a lot of money back then. You better believe it. Yeah. I was very lucky to get it. Anyway, I I was doing enough business that this summer of 69, I went to Europe. Wow. So it was like getting struck by lightning. I mean, I was so fortunate. Yeah. I mean, Game on Huff literally exploded by 71. The studio was busy day and night. I was working. Mm. I mean, I immediately had to hire uh, Carparulo and... Uh, I was fortunate, remember this, I took the, the second floor of 212 with Frankfurt Wayne. Right. So they sort of buffered me, he gave me the, the courage, I signed the lease, mm -hmm. they were my tenants. Well, we should point out Frankfurt Wayne was mastering, just yeah. mastering. Lab. Did, yeah. did all the mastering for, for uh, uh, they were pretty good technical guys, yeah. and they helped me. And they were right in the back of the control room. Like, right, right, yeah. they had the front room, front offices. Tom was pretty good technically. Mm -hmm. So there was a good marriage of what I lacked and was a lot. I had the support of Tom. Dave Hughes built, he did a marvelous job. Fortunately, we never got along. <laughs> so I threw, a, I threw a bench twice at him one time. I got so mad. <laughs> he used to make me boil. Mm. But he did, he was, you would, he he meets your standard for, for wiring. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, I mean, everything's laced and 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 squared off and yeah. military style. Right. He was very... Uh, so who, who was the first uh, engineer you hired besides you? Carpulo. And how long was he there? He was there a long time, right? I'm going to guess up. It was probably the early 80s. Mm -hmm. And he and, and Secretary uh, Vivian Abbott took their profit sharing and opened a restaurant. And uh, the one thing I'm very proud of today is my employees had health insurance, life insurance, and profit sharing. That's great. The, fortunately, the business was, was good enough. I mean, you know, it, it, it worked out. Yeah. So I, I'm very, when I hear... You know, the, the struggle of, I guess things were different then. I don't, you know, it might be more difficult today, but. We, we should mention that, that sitting in front of Joe here as we're talking are four Sigma recreation direct boxes based on Joe's original design from Sigma. That, that's an overstatement. It's a, I know, it, everybody did the same thing. We all built those same things, but this was Sigma. I, you know, I think that, that was why you had such good, dedicated employees, because you took good care of them, and they liked working there. They believed. I mean, mm -hmm. they would come in on Sunday and be painting, you know, the gobos or something. I mean, yeah. They, yeah. And, but, but I had a certain, not as, not as much as you, but I had a certain thing about, you know, they knew mm -hmm. that when they walked through the uh, hall, if there was a coffee cup on the table, they, they threw it away. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. we, we picked up it. You know what? Well, I found out you know, a lot of the people that came to Sigma were, were from, from the inner city and so forth. They treated the place the way they found it. Yeah. The cleaner you kept it, they, they, they treated it with respect. Well, I always remember that. That, that place was always immaculate. I mean, it was well-worn, but it was clean, and everything worked. You, did you, you know Jay Mark? Sure. He he was sort of my buddy, and I, I don't know who came up with it. Olmsted Studios in New York took an ad that said, more balls. Mm -hmm. And and the other people were taking ads with listing all their equipment. So I said, what what can we say? Yeah. So I, we took an ad. I think Jay came up with the idea, clean restrooms. <laughs> it's true. And yeah. I got more mileage out of that. Yeah. Gamble and Huff were just as hungry as I was at the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, they had to make it, and fortunately, they, you know, they, they didn't have success at Sigma right off the bat. They did a couple OJ's albums and didn't do anything. They signed with, with uh, CBS, Clive Davis. Right. They were, they were almost at the point when they were going to be dropped, 
and uh, McFadden and Whitehead and Huff wrote Backstabbers. Mm -hmm. And that took off like a, and that was like an, ex, from there on in, and I think that was 72. Mm -hmm. And I moved there in 68. Well, I think there was a, a pretty long stretch in the 70s when Sigma had 10% or more of the chart. Well, it, it was a, a, lot of, a lot of the disco charts. I mean, I don't think that, that Gamble and Huff or anybody other than the people that came after, like Tom Moulton and, and uh, Vince Montana, mm -hmm. played that disco card. I think they just made dance music that people danced to and, and, and coined that name. So you opened up 8-Track, and that was 8-Track, uh, was it a Scully or an Amplex? Scully. Scully, yeah. And that was a Scully 16. Right. I had and both then, those machines, too. And then then I, I, I jumped to uh, 3M. Right. Yeah, my 24 was a 3M, M79, too. And I was fortunate. I found people that became experts, Mike Spitz. But uh, they went out to work for Ampex. They were teaching, they were telling Ampex what to do. They, they told 3M what to do. Mm -hmm. They were, I was so lucky to, you know, and, and they felt lucky to work, be working for me, so it worked out. But I, I had people that, that, that were really designers, and uh, Jerry Block invented the, um, the uh, synchronizer, what was it called? The, he was able to lock two machine, tape machines. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, with this empty time code. Yeah. I like to believe that it was the decorum and the, and the uh, attention to detail that I admire you for mm. that made them, gave them a place. I mean, they, they, I, I attracted, if I did anything great, it was I attracted good people. Yeah. Yeah, you sure did. Because, you know, I did a bunch of sessions there because you were always the next stage ahead. So when <laughs> we were 16 track and we needed more tracks, we'd book the time at Sigma to, to do the rest of the project. It was always, to me, it was just always a joy to My work My advantage there. was I had the customers. I yeah. mean, I, you know, Gamble, if Gamble and Huff had left me, I'd, I mean, they were 30, at least 30, 40% of my business in Philly, you know, in New York, New York, we we rode the wave of, I you know I, I laugh. One of the biggest sessions that, that we ever did was the fact that David Bowie came to Sigma, and and when I point out to people, I said it was a big deal in Philly. Bowie had been a couple of times Sigma in New York. Nobody even noticed. Yeah, well, there was something special about that Sigma Philly sound that I think people all liked. But tell me about when. The, the rhythm section that you're so, the Sigmas and Campbell and Hopper are so associated with, how did that come together? Do you remember when those guys got together? Well, there, there was an evolution. Mm -hmm. when, when we were working at Cameo Parkway, when Gamble and Huff and, and Tom Bell were working at Cameo Parkway, it was a different rhythm section. I'm not sure, Baker and Harrison Young was a big change. They probably... Entered the picture about 66, 67. Mm -hmm. But in 65 and the, and the records before that, the early uh, <coughs> intruder records mm -hmm. were um, a different rhythm section and had a different, entirely different sound. Carl Chambers was a drummer and his brother. Uh, for the other. Roland Chambers, the name of the Yeah. For the other players, like strings, who. who who was the contractor for the string? Don Ronaldo was a was a uh, character. <laughs> he was a he was a, a um, bistro violinist. That you go around the tables, yeah. whatever. Politically, he got in there and he became the contractor. Right. And like the, the god to the horn players and and string players looked to gain favor with because in uh, a couple of years back, 2013, we did. Uh, we honored the uh, MFSB and so mm -hmm. forth, mm -hmm. and and those guys, you know, these the, the, the bull-headed Jewish guys and Italians and with, with pot bellies, and they loved they you, you'd think that they 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 would sort of scoff at doing this black music. Mm -hmm. They loved it. Yeah. I, I I saw um, uh, 
Joe D'Angelis, right. a French horn player. Yeah, sure. I met him a few years back. He's still alive. Is he? And, and, uh, and he said, you know, how he admired working for Tommy. Joe D'Angelis traveled with Frank Sinatra. To, you know, he traveled the world. He was in Africa and so forth with Frank Sinatra. So when they say that, the respect that they had for someone like Tommy Bell... So they really appreciated working for. Yeah, well, we used to use Joe DeAngelis when we needed a horn player. And yeah, and well, it was it was the same. You call them first first chair players that right. everybody uses the same people. Yeah, and you know my studio was really successful only because of Sigma, because you had all the, you know, you brought people in, and we got the overflow. <laughs> well, you know, it was interesting. In those days, in, in New York, they had rental companies. Mm -hmm. I would, there was nothing like that in Philly. So I, I was buying Fender Rhodes pianos, uh, whatever the toy was, I was buying. So I had the clavinets. And so when people came to Sigma, I, did, I owned the guitar amps. I, yeah, because you couldn't go to uh, what was the what was the rental company in New York called? Oh, I know who you mean because we used to use them all the time too. Yeah, yeah. You know, somebody client would come in, they'd insist on something they had to have, and yeah, right. We we rent it from. It was funny how the book business worked in those days. Yeah, S I R. Yeah, Sigma was really successful, and you opened the New York room. What? Yeah, what Se year was that? Uh, we built it in '76. We opened it in '77. Mm -hmm. And how was that different from Sigma Philly? Uh, in what way? Well, sound-wise, client-wise. Well, I mean, there's so many. It's totally different market, right? Yeah. Well, every and everybody came because because of Philly. Yeah. Yeah. I got a shot at everybody. Mm -hmm. We were never the premier studios. They were. That was a Hit Factory and and mm -hmm. the, the Tony Bon Jovi's place. We had a nice run. I, I guess the, uh, I can remember about there about uh, maybe fifty gold records come out of that studio. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it wasn't it, it, it was limited by the the real estate. The mm -hmm. building had ten foot ceilings, you know, you know, so you couldn't do a lot. But we did a lot of um, jingle work when they'd come in and with a whole orchestra, and and then in one hour they wanted to be out of there, you know. Mm -hmm. And those guys, I couldn't, I couldn't work under that type of pressure. Mm. But I had the guys that could do it. How big was that room? Well, we had we had three studios there. Yeah. That room, I'm going to say it was thirty by twenty. It was uh, it was odd shaped, but you know the ten foot ceiling. We had we had clouds that broke it up a little bit. But I mean, it was shortly after that 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 uh, that SSL was making all the noise. Mm -hmm. And we bought the first 600 console, which was made for, you know, video production. And uh, Dave T McTeague was head of uh, maintenance, uh, head of his technical service department, and uh, he actually worked with uh, SSL in redesigning. We bought what they shipped, mm -hmm. and and he redesigned it, and mm -hmm. they adopted it. So that's the kind of people we had, fortunately. Way over my head, but great. Yeah, I was going to ask about staff. How many of the people from Philly uh, were involved in the New York studios? I would say six. Jay, Mike Hutchison, about six. Were they permanently working up there? Did they moved back. Yeah, they, they, uh, Jay is still living in the. Yeah. yeah, the ones that moved up stayed. You know, the single guys that that came to me in a camper to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> My cousin lived in a, uh, in a Volkswagen bus really? across the street. Oh my goodness! And then, what year was it when you did the the total rebuild of uh, the Philly studio? Big mistake. That was um, early '80s. The records never sounded the same after that. I was so impressed with the Tom Hidley Studios in the West Coast, and mm -hmm. always suspect of yourself, and never. Like you say, you, 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 the way you remember records, I didn't know how good they were going to sound to me later. Mm -hmm. So I was always chasing, and I, and I chased too far. <laughs> I, 
I guess it was the room. It just didn't have that same character. What the magic was of Studio A, I don't know, but I know I know what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it was just one big open room. I think that had a lot to do with it. The new the new room was a lot of angles, a lot of booths. Everything had its own isolation. Yeah, the, the and piano was in a booth. Yeah, the drums were were in a cavity, and and those three pillars were always in the way. I know. There's no way around that. Yep. Well, the guy that bought it from me put steel on the roof and hung the roof from from the uh, took the columns out just to get rid of those columns. That's an expensive thing to get rid of. Columns. Well, he was a contractor. Okay, he should have stayed right. a contractor. Yeah. That poor guy took took a bath. But I told him he was a dreamer. I was lucky to get. I came in on a knee to curve, mm -hmm. and and you knew when to when to to move on. After Sigma, what did you do after that? I made a bad deal. You know, sinking ships. Hmm. You, 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 you tie your, your boat to the other boat so you're, that you're both unstable. Yeah. So I, I uh, partnered with um, Alpha Studios in South Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. But the record business was changing too. But the intent was, it wasn't a bad idea. They had a hit record. Hmm. I, was, I can't think of the name of it right now. Hmm. And the idea was they were going to follow that th uh, that formula and make records. He, Pete was a uh, a businessman, mm -hmm. uh, or thought like a businessman, and he knew how to promote a record. So with that skill, and Sigma, he was going to. We were going to um, start a record company, mm -hmm. and so we spent the next two years trying to raise three million dollars for the record company. It was like hell. Mm. Finally got the money, got a deal with um, Polygram. After we didn't produce, we got dropped, and and it was I was eating. It was very uh, shaky for a long while, and I bought the studio back, and uh, my son ran it. So eventually, uh, we started a public company, and I sold my interest. It went another direction, and I didn't understand it. It wasn't my business, and and Pete was became very successful to his credit. So the two twelve building now, I think they're turning into condos or something. The, the, they they had so many violations that they, it got shut down. Hmm. They took they took the uh, two fourteen building, demolished it. You could stand on the basement floor and look at the roof. The only thing that holds that front wall up is they left the f three front offices <laughs> and the rest is gone. And, and they must have violated so many building codes yeah. that the city shut them down. It could have been like uh, um, Sun Studios or whatever. It could mm. have been a, a destination, but it takes money. Yeah. You know, it's a shame. I mean, it is a historic, there is a historic marker there now. Yeah. What have, what what haven't we talked about that you'd like to, to talk the about? The main thing is what we started with, which was 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 Emil Corson mm -hmm. and the sound he got mm -hmm. and how it eluded me all those years until I figured out the secret. It was a sort yeah. of like an inevitable mistake or whatever. Yeah. First of all, it would nothing would have happened without Gamblehoff and Bell. Almost everybody in the rhythm section, had their own little success. Mm -hmm. Vince Montana had the Salsa Orchestra. Baker Harrison Young had the Tramps. Mm -hmm. uh, Bobby Eli had Blue Magic. Every Almost everybody connected had their bite of the apple. Everybody follows a hit. Mm -hmm. You know, I, 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 used to, I tell people that when Nirvana had a hit in, in Seattle, the record companies ran there, and signed everybody was carrying a guitar. Yeah. And the same thing with the with Prince. Yeah. In, you know, Minneapolis. Yeah. Everybody follows a hit. So, yeah. so when Gamble and Huff and Bell started to have hits, people came from all over. I mean, three guys come in, two guys come from into the studio and, and go to my manager's office, Harry Chippets, mm -hmm. and say, uh, they read off names, obviously off the back of an album. And Harry, 
in his wonderful way, switched them to other people that were available, and they created the village people. Was the rhythm section contracted to Gamble and Huff? Were they total? Were they always one of the, independent? One of the big mistakes that Kenny Gamble made was he could have locked up, and he never did. I'm looking for the word for evolution. Mm -hmm. There was evolution of musicians that changed, but the the core, the main one, mm -hmm. was Baker, Harrison, Young, Nor yeah. Ronnie Baker, uh, Earl Young, and uh, Norman Harris. And around them were Eli, mm -hmm. Bobby Eli, and and uh, Vince Montana was a, a key part of, of the group, and Larry Washington played bongos and. There was an evolution, but they were the core in the in the hottest period. Right. Yeah, well, it was quite an era. I've been talking with legendary engineer Joe Tarsia, founder of Sigma Sound Studios. A slightly longer version of this interview is available on my YouTube channel. The video includes many still photos taken at Sigma, thanks to former Sigma engineer Arthur Stoppy. This is an important part of our recording heritage, and I urge any of you who have access to the pioneers like Joe Tarsia to take the time and capture their history. Thank you for listening to this and the previous 25 episodes. Your comments and suggestions are always appreciated. Email me at dwfern at dwfern.com. This is my take on music recording. I'm Doug Fern. See you next time.